So I was reading the news the other day and I saw a headline that immediately caught my attention. The headline of this particular news article is entitled, House Hunting on Mars Has Already Started. I'm not kidding. House Hunting on Mars has already started. And so I saw the headline, I clicked on it, and I read the article. And sure enough, the article went on to explain that there are some scientists who are devoting a ton of time and energy and money, your tax dollars at work probably, um, to surveying the topography of Mars and finding these subterranean caves that they think people can live in. Now these uh, caves are subterranean because you have to escape somehow the harsh conditions of Mars. And so these scientists have found these subterranean caves that they're mapping and marking for people to live in. And they've also uh, suggest that the most desirable caves are those that are located within 60 miles from a landing site. Okay, 60 miles from a landing site. I'm guessing that after the long journey to Mars, you really don't want to go any further than an additional 60 miles. 65 is just too much, right? Um, but uh, anyway, they're, they're mapping out these subterranean caves. They're, I mean, and as I'm reading this article, I, I first thought, man, can you imagine how high real estate prices are going to be on Mars? Like, I thought real estate prices were high in Dallas. Uh, but imagine what they will be like for Mars. You buy the ticket. Um, you jump on your spaceship, you land on Mars, and you travel to your subterranean cave. I just can't imagine uh, what the price tag is going to be on these things. Um, probably your life, by the way. I don't recommend uh, you buying one of these caves. But um, the second thought that entered my mind as I was reading this article, I really stopped and I thought, man, what's the motivation for this? Like, have we really come to the point where we're going to start buying subterranean caves on Mars to escape this planet? I mean, that, there, there's a lot in that, right? That's a really loaded idea. And so I begin to think, you know, what, what is really the motivation for us that we're looking to purchase subterranean caves on Mars to spend the rest of our life? Like, that's a little crazy, isn't it? But as I thought about it, to me, it was just another piece of evidence that deep down, all of us, believers and unbelievers, deep down, all of us recognize that there is something broken about this world we live in. All of us deep down recognize that we were created for something better than what's in front of us. I think all of us, even the most staunch atheist, would recognize that we were created for something much more than this. And as I read this article, I was reminded of the wise words of C.S. Lewis who in mere Christianity says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, 
spoiler alert, if you've not read Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis was not proposing we move to Mars. <laughs> but he is on to something. That you and I were created for another world. And I want to invite you to open your Bible up to John chapter 14 as we continue our series in the Upper Room Discourse, John chapters 13 through 17. And what I hope to convince you of this morning is not to buy a subterranean cave on Mars, but my goal for you this morning is to convince you that there is a better place awaiting you. That you and I were created to live in a world of perfection and peace, but unfortunately we have broken in this world, and so right now, We're waiting for our ultimate redemption. Because you and I all know that this life, our world, is indeed filled with sadness, despair, brokenness, and disillusionment. And at times, we want to escape this life. But what I want you to see instead is the promise Jesus makes in this passage that we were created for a much better place than this. As we continue our series here in the Upper Room Discourse, I want to remind you of what we have seen. The disciples, they've been walking with Jesus now for about three years, and now Jesus has begun telling his disciples that it's time for him to leave. He's going someplace. And he's told his disciples up to this point, you can't come with me, you can't follow me. He's even told his disciples that he's about to die and then his disciples have come and said to Jesus, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, I'll even die for you. But then Jesus told his disciples, no, uh, you're actually gonna deny me, one of you is gonna betray me and so the disciples are in this moment of disillusionment. All that they've hoped for All that they've trusted in these three years of walking with Jesus seems to be about to slip between their fingers. And they're disillusioned with what Jesus has just said. And so the question I want us to ask this morning is where do we turn when we feel disillusioned with this life? There in your bulletin, you've received an outline, and you can see we're going to look at John 14, 1 through 14 in three sections. First, we're going to see the promise that Jesus makes to his disciples in their state of disillusionment. Second, we're going to take a look at the path that Jesus offers to escape from this disillusionment. And then third, we're going to talk about the proof Jesus gives to really validate the promises that he's making here in this passage. And I want to invite you again to put yourself in the place of the disciples. Imagine that you've walked with him for three years. You've believed every word that he said. You've seen the miracles he's done. You've suffered along with him. And Jesus has just told you, listen, I'm leaving. And you can't come with me. For the disciples, everything seems to be on the verge of collapse. All the promises of Jesus seem to be now something to question. 
It's in that context that Jesus says this to his disciples. John chapter 14, notice what he says first in verse, verse 1. He says to his disciples in their disillusionment, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, the disciples' hearts are troubled. They're in despair. They're in disillusionment. All that they've trusted in, all that they've hoped for seems to be about to walk out the door. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And this has produced in the heart of the disciples some disillusionment or troubling news for the disciples. So Jesus tells them here in verse 1, after he says, I'm leaving and you can't come with me, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I love the word troubled there in verse 1. That particular word for troubled is used elsewhere to describe a ship that is on a tumultuous sea. A ship that's just trying to stay afloat on a tumultuous ocean. And listen, I know enough of the stories in this room to know that all of us, I'm sure, have been through those sorts of situations in life when it feels like you are drowning. When it feels like the promises of God can't be trusted anymore. When it seems like all hope has been lost. When you're in this state of disillusionment, of turmoil, of distress, of hardship. Jesus says to his disciples, he says to you and to me, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, you've trusted in me this far. Keep trusting in me. That's kind of the Jace Cloud paraphrase. And it's in that context of a troubled heart, a disillusioned state, that Jesus then offers hope for hurting hearts. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. So again, Jesus has been telling his disciples, listen, I've got to leave and you can't come with me. His disciples are distressed, they're disillusioned, their hearts are troubled, and it's in that context Jesus then gives this remarkable promise of a place. Jesus says, I'm leaving, and now he tells them exactly where it is he's going. And he uses this incredible image that anybody in the first century, a Jewish person in the first century would have immediately recognized he's talking about this place called the Father's house. And to understand what Jesus is saying here, you need to understand that when a, a man and a woman got betrothed, or we would say engaged in the first century world, that newly betrothed man would leave his bride-to-be, he would go to his father's house, and he would begin constructing a new room on that father's house. This was the honeymoon suite, if you will. 
This was the place the groom-to-be and the bride-to-be would live the rest of their life, most likely. So the man would get betrothed to this woman. He would go to his father's house. He would have been constructing this room where he and his bride-to-be would live there, attached to the father's house. And then when the construction was complete and the time was right for the wedding to take place, he would go back to his bride. He would receive her to himself and he would parade her from her father's house to his father's house to this new place in which they would live as a newly married couple. And this is the image that Jesus is using here. He's told his disciples, listen, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And now he explains to his disciples where it is that he's going. He's going to the Father's house. And notice what he says here, I'm going to prepare a place for you as the bride of Christ. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then notice verse three, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, here's the promise, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also and you know the way where I'm going. Listen, if you're married, I want you to think back to maybe your days of engagement and uh, maybe to use a slightly different analogy, imagine doing all of the wedding preparations, paying all the money, but then unless you break the engagement, right? You, you just, the wedding doesn't take place. It's kind of anticlimactic, right? Um, Jesus here is laying out the promise, listen, I'm leaving, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and the fact that I'm going to prepare a place for you is the guarantee that I'm gonna come back and receive you to myself, because what groom would go through all that effort of preparing a place for a bride never to come back and get her, right? So what we see here is an incredible promise of Jesus that he's leaving his disciples to go and prepare a place for them. This is Jesus' hope for their hurting hearts. What Jesus is saying here is that this separation that's now 2,000 years and counting, he's saying this separation is only temporary. That the time between his advent, or we would say between his ascension and then the rapture, his return for his bride for the church, this is only temporary. He is leaving, he tells his disciples, but in his leaving, the disciples will not be forgotten. In his leaving, his disciples whom he loves, you and me, Despite how we might feel, he's not forgotten you. And this is Jesus' hope for hurting hearts. Again, if you've lived life long enough, you know that in those moments of disillusionment, it's hard to trust God. It's hard to continually fall back on his promises. It's one thing to know this intellectually, but it's another thing to let that reality sink into our hearts. If you've lived life long enough, if you've had those moments of disillusionment and even questioning, wondering, God, do you still see me? Do you really love me? Do you even care? Sometimes the reality is, we, we call this a crisis of faith. It does feel like God is distant. Perhaps he said goodbye to you. 
But this is Jesus' hope for hurting hearts. And if you struggle with this, you're not alone. Because Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, doesn't quite get it either. Let's take a look at number two on your outline. Jesus has just said, He's going to prepare a place for his disciples. You know the way where I am going. Verse 4, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? We don't know where you're going. Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand where it is you're going, so how do we know the way to follow you at some point in the future? Uh, again, we often give the disciples a hard time, but you have to appreciate Thomas's question here. Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying. Where are you going? So how, if I don't know where you're going, how do we know the way? And then, thankfully, Jesus then answers Thomas. Notice what Jesus says in verse 6. Jesus said to him, to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, you want to know the way? The way to where I'm going to the Father's house? Do you want to know the way to where I'm going? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I love what D.A. Carson says here. He says, this is an amazing statement by Jesus. I am the way, spoken by one whose way was the shame of a Roman cross. I am the truth, spoken by one who is about to be condemned by lying witnesses. And I am the life, uttered by the one whose battered corpse would shortly rest in a dark tomb. But Jesus says, listen, Thomas, if you want to know the way to where I'm going, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he drops the bomb. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to know where I'm going? I'm going to the Father's house. Do you want to know the way where I'm going? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And guess what? No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, a lot of people today are very uncomfortable with the words of Jesus here in this verse. You mean to tell me Jesus is saying that no one gets to heaven except by faith in him. You mean to tell me that all religions ultimately lead to hell and nothing other than faith in Jesus leads to the Father's house? That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. But us not liking it or us being uncomfortable with it, us thinking it seems too restrictive doesn't change the truth of what Jesus says here. But I do want you to see something here in the words of Jesus that's, that's amazing. That I think shifts our perspective from rather than seeing this as restrictive, seeing this as inviting. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your Bibles, and if you're a person who writes in your Bibles, I want you to grab a pen or a pencil. And between the two words, Father and but, or except in some translations, I want you to draw a line or a period, some sort of hard stop. Breaking this last statement of Jesus in verse 6 really into two parts. No one comes to the Father, line, but through me. 
Here's what I want you to see. What you and I deserve is for the statement of Jesus to end where that line is. No one comes to the Father, period. Because the reality is we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The reality is we don't deserve access to God. The reality is we deserve eternal separation from him. That's where we deserve the sentence to end. But God in his grace, in his love, in his mercy, didn't have the sentence end there. Instead, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father. That's what you deserve except through me. That's called grace. That's called mercy. That's called redemption. I love what one commentator says. He says that word except or but is like a window that lets light shine into a closed and dark room. Christ coming in as the light into a world of darkness, rather than restricting access to God, that word except creates access to God. Jesus creates access to God. But it is absolutely true that the only access to God is through him. But praise God, in Jesus we have access See, rather than seeing this verse as so restrictive, it's really inviting that anyone who puts their faith in him is welcomed into the very presence of God, welcomed into the Father's house. And listen, I want to give you the opportunity, as I do every single week here in this room or watching online, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, The bad news is there is no other way. There is no other way. But the good news of the gospel, the thing we can rejoice in, is that while we deserved no way, God in Jesus provided the way. God in Jesus provided the only way that we can enjoy eternal access and fellowship with a holy God. And if you've not trusted in him, I want to encourage you Put your faith in him. I realize that's a controversial verse, but interestingly, it's actually the next verse that would have been more controversial in the first century because notice what Jesus says in verse seven. He says, if you, again, speaking to Thomas still, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. See, again, interesting, for a first century Jew, it's this verse, verse 7, that would have been more controversial than verse 6, and it's controversy for us today, because here in verse 7, Jesus boldly says, if you would have known me, you would have known the Father, and if from now on, Philip, you have seen him, you've seen me. In other words, what Jesus is doing here says, if you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is putting himself on the same plane as God the Father. This in the first century world would have been blasphemy to claim equality with God. And it's this statement of Jesus actually that would have produced more shock 
and its hearers, which is exactly what we see as we take a look at number three on your outline. Philip now has a couple of questions based on this shocking statement of Jesus. Notice chapter 14, verse eight. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. See, Philip recognizes that Jesus, what Jesus has just said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip recognizes that Jesus has just claimed equality with God the Father, and it's that shocking statement that confuses Philip. And so Philip is asking basically for just a little bit more evidence, a little bit more clarification on what Jesus just said. He says, just show us the Father, and, and, and that's enough proof. That's enough evidence for us. We'll, we'll believe you after that. And so notice what Jesus says, replying back to Philip. Jesus says to him, verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me, notice this again, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Notice the relationship between the Father and the Son Jesus is describing here. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say, here's the proof of this unique relationship between the Father and the Son. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So again, picking up on this question, Jesus just boldly declared that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, that the Father and the Son have this really unique relationship. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. If you know the Son, you know the Father. This would have been a blasphemous statement in the first century. And so Philip is is confused. He wants just a little more proof, a little more evidence. But notice here in these verses, in Jesus' reply to Philip, he gives two pieces of evidence or proof that what he has said is indeed true. Jesus offers the proof of his words and his works. His words testify of this relationship with the Father and his works testify testify as the proof of this relationship with his father. Again, notice for what uh, example what he says there, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes me, the works that I do, he will, or excuse, I'm sorry, um, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me, otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Jesus offers up as the proof of his relationship with the Father, explaining how he and only he can be the way to the Father by laying out his words and his works, what he has said and what he has done, his teaching and his ministry, his miracles. He's effectively saying to his disciples, listen, These three years that you've walked with me and you've heard all of my teaching, you saw all the things that I've done, that's proof in and of itself. It's sufficient proof that I and the Father are one. But then, notice verse 12, Jesus offers additional proof. 
Verse 12 now, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus has just said to his disciples, listen, if you want the proof that I and the Father are one, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, look no further than my words and my works. But here in verse 12, he gives kind of bonus evidence. And he lays out this shocking statement that the one who believes in him, that's you and me, will do greater works because Jesus goes to the Father. Can you imagine that? Jesus is saying some of the proof, the evidence of this unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son is the works that he does through us, through the church. And Jesus even says, greater works. What in the world does this mean? Because, I mean, I've been a Christian for a while, but I've never resurrected anybody from the dead, right? <laughs> I've never multiplied loaves and fishes. I mean, what in the world? I've never walked on water. What in the world is Jesus talking about? We will do greater works as the proof to the world of this relationship between the Father and the Son. And commentators have come up with all sorts of explanations. The best one I think out there is when Jesus uses the word greater, he's talking about the duration, the quantity, not necessarily the quality. In other words, Jesus' ministry for the most part was about three years, but now for about 2,000 years, the church, followers of Jesus, have been doing incredible works in his name, as he says here, that should be proof of the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's an incredible statement of Jesus, a, a, a challenging statement of Jesus, if we're honest. But this is a challenging passage. Man, John 14, 1 through 14, has a number of really difficult sayings of Jesus here. He and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. You'll do greater works than I've done. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are all very challenging statements of Jesus here in John chapter 14. And as I wrestled with this passage this week, what I kept coming back to again and again and again is the disillusionment of the disciples. All week long as I was wrestling with these verses, I tried to really put myself in the place of these people who have given their life to Jesus. They followed him every day along the way up until now. And now Jesus is saying, listen, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And it's in that state of disillusionment, again, that Jesus offers this promise. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I'm going to prepare a place for you, that means I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. Jesus keeps pointing them to his promises in their state of disillusionment, and this is Jesus' hope for their hurting hearts. 
because their hopes and dreams are about to be crucified to a cross. They're distraught. The world as they know it right now is about to come crashing down. And I think in that, there's a lesson for you and for me as well. Because if we're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, we have to come to terms with the reality that we live in a fallen world. That this world, as C.S. Lewis tells us, is not our home. That we indeed were created for something much greater than this. But between this time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return for his church at this event we call the rapture, it's tough. There is heartache and despair and discouragement and disillusionment and times when we question our faith and we wrestle with the promises of God. Are they really going to come true? What's ironic to me is that when we get disillusioned with this world, we still try to turn to the things of this fallen world in order to try fulfillment, right? When we get disillusioned with this broken world, we still turn to the fallen things of this world to somehow satisfy the longings in our soul, and we wonder why we're always dissatisfied. Because we're looking to the wrong place. As C.S. Lewis said, we're far too easily pleased. The thing I want you to see here in John chapter 14 is that we were created for another world. We're not created to live on Mars. That's not going to solve our problems. <laughs> Ultimately, what we're longing for is this place Jesus calls the Father's house. One of the difficult things of life that I know probably all of us have faced from time to time, is that God uses the disillusionments of our life to remind us that there is something or someone more. Something, someone greater than this. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, he's brilliant on this in the problem of pain. He says, there are times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. He says, your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it, made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. And this is our hope for hurting hearts. There on the back side of your outline is... Some application questions that I have for you and your one thing for this week, if you have time for nothing else, I want to ask you to do this, to ask yourself, when was a time in your life when you felt disillusioned, when you can relate to the situation of the disciples here, when you are confused, perplexed, especially with God, and you're maybe questioning his promises, questioning his goodness. And again, we've all been there. And I want you to ask yourself, Why? And then how did the Lord lead you through that time? And how do our times of disillusionment ultimately point toward our ultimate longing for heaven? Listen, I know this is kind of a heavy message. This is kind of a heavy passage. Um, probably should have given you like a trigger warning or something at the beginning, but just be mindful of the fact that anytime we open our Bible, we're probably going to be triggered in some way, okay? The Bible says a lot of very uncomfortable things, and that's okay, because there's also hope. 
sad. It would be much more depressing if I were to stand up here and tell you there is no hope in this world and there's no hope in the afterlife either, right? That's depressing. But what this passage is pointing us to is yet, yes, this life can be filled with hardship and disillusionment, but we were created for so much more than this. And praise be to God, Jesus is going to bring us into a place much better than this. And it's amazing to me, every single week as I'm writing my sermon, I really wrestle with and often struggle with finding an illustration to use. And some of you out in the commons after church, you've asked me the question, how do you come up with these illustrations? Um, uh, and the truth is, to tell you the truth, just I'm really not all that creative. I'm really not all that creative. But every single week, it seems like, for the last eight years, if I preach week in and week out, God drops these illustrations into my lap at just the right time. I promise I'm really not all that creative. I'm not all that good of a preacher, but God just drops these things in my lap and I'm grateful for it every week and I'm waiting for the one week when he doesn't deliver. He's not done that yet, I don't think. Um, the reason I say this is, is because I'd have to, it's all for his glory. I'd have to be dumb and blind not to see what he often works in my life to bring together these messages. And he did it yet again this week. As I'm wrestling with this passage, trying to think, man, how does this connect with the reality of life that we all live in? I had multiple appointments this week from people in this church who are in a state of disillusionment, who are suffering, who are going through significant hardship. And praise God, I got to point them to this passage. And I found in, in those moments of life, and I'm sure you have them too, when you're sitting face to face with a friend, someone who's struggling, someone who's going through a really difficult time, and you don't, don't know what to say. I have found that often the best thing to say, number one, is to acknowledge the reality of what they're going through. It is hard. Don't try to brush it aside. But then offer to them the only hope that we really have is that we're created for another world. And even the pain that we go through is meant to be a reminder to us that we just live in the shadow land, the land between this liminal space between Jesus' ascension and his return for his church. And instead of finding that depressing, I find it to be hopeful. And this is Jesus' hope for us when we have hurting hearts. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we confess indeed that this world is broken. It's broken because we broke it. Uh, we're constantly just messing it up. And it's so easy to get discouraged, to fall into despair, to get disillusioned with life. And God, if we're honest, sometimes we get disillusioned with you. It seems like at times, Father, uh, we don't know if we can trust you. Sometimes, Father, life slaps us across the face so hard that we question your goodness. And so, Father, I ask for those in this room, those watching online who are in that moment right now, that your spirit would be their comfort. That you, in a way only you can do, would remind them of this promise of Jesus that they were created for another world. They were created for something much greater than this. And help them to trust 
in the promise of Jesus we see in this passage that one day, one day, Jesus is going to come and make all things new. Father, as we await that day, as we await that time when we get to rejoice in seeing our Savior face to face, give us strength. Help us to encourage one another, to love one another as you have loved us. And help us, Father, as we live in this fallen world, as we encounter people who are hurting and suffering. Help us, by the power of your Spirit, to give them a reason for the hope that is within us. God, help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.